Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we're gonna have the battle of accents here. So the UK accent and the Spanglish that you're probably used to listening, you know, like uh, while you listen to all these episodes. But but I think that the guest today, you know, like we're gonna really learn quite a bit. Uh, he's gonna really share with us the untraditional method that he has used to raise over $120 million. Uh, but I think that without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, David Richards. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. So born in Sheffield to a family involved in the steel business. So how was life growing up there? It was interesting. I mean, it was, I was born in 1970, um, which was right about the time that uh, steel was beginning to decline. Um, at, at one point, Sheffield was sort of the Silicon Valley of the third phase of the Industrial Revolution. It's... Uh, uh, my my family moved to the moved to the area in the 1850s, when some new manufacturing processes were invented. Uh, it was called the Bessemer converter, and uh, Henry Bessemer came up from uh, London to Sheffield, and uh, the steel industry just exploded. 1.80% of uh, European steel was manufactured in the town, so it's got a long heritage and history. And actually, three generations of my family uh, were steel owners. They the my grandfather's company employed over 200,000 people. And ironically, that's now a shopping center. It's called Meadow Hall, which is on the outskirts of the, of the city. So it was interesting. I saw, I, obviously, areas that were once in great prosperity, think Silicon Valley in computing and tech. That's what Sheffield was like. And then it just declined. And Sheffield failed, really, to take advantage of the next phase of the Industrial Revolution, which was driven by technology, computers, the stuff that we know very well here in the US, and really failed to participate in the next generation. So we saw people plunged into, into great poverty, so that the town was really in decline. If you remember the movie, The Full Monty, about the former steel workers in those derelict steel plants, that's where that was actually filmed. So The Full Monty was actually from, from my hometown. That's amazing. Well, you're going to have a, a laugh out of this, but my first kiss... It was during during watching at the movie theater Full Monty. Can you believe it? <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's, anyway, it's, it's, it's a romantic movie, and it, it, it would it would touch anybody. <laughs> 
<laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, so here, David. So then, let's talk about like you going to university. So you went to Huddersfield, is that right? Yeah, which is uh, as a university in the in the northern part of the city. I went there because in the northern part of the UK, just outside Sheffield. I went there okay. because they were teaching this new thing called Unix, and uh, the guy who was um, teaching one of the classes was actually writing the book, and it was uh, it was a great place to study, and uh, we got access to a lot of the nouveau new techniques. So, whereas some of my friends that were doing computer science in the UK were, were using very ethereal computer science, still in the UK, I have to say, tends to be very ethereal, tends to focus on deep, uh, you know, binomial logic and all those things. I wanted a much more practical, um, hands-on approach that would give me a skill and teach me actually how to, how to write code, how to structure programs and so on. So I had a great experience there. met some great people. Got it. And then obviously one of your first gigs was uh, with a company called Druid. So, uh, what were you doing there? Well, I, I'm, I'm, as you'll see as we go through this podcast, I'm, I'm not very keen on taking the, the traditional path, some might say the easy path. Um, so post-university, um, most people as in, back in the sort of mid, mid to late 80s were, the traditional thinking was that you go and work for IBM or you go and work for Unisys or one of the big uh, sort of mainframe uh, computing guys who were uh, really in control of the industry. Um, uh, you know, and, and going on the sort of management training programs, and they did, did they do all these tests, and I used to get bored, senseless, in these elongated interviews and aptitude tests and so on that they used to do back in those days, and I just could not see myself ever working in a for one of those companies. I just I, it was mind mind numbingly boring. I thought so. Um, in the back of one of the careers magazines, I saw a little advertisement for a tiny company called Druid Systems. And Druid was uh, basically doing this new thing called ERP and SAP in particular. Um, so I went, to, I went to interview, and I was actually interviewed by the managing director, by the CEO, by the founder and CEO of the company. And uh, we kind of, he was from up, up north as well. He's from Newcastle, which kind of concluded the interview in a pub. And I thought, wow, this is the, this is the kind of company that I want to work for. And uh, it, it turned out to be uh, a bloody good choice because it was, I was sort of in the first few employees um, in, in the company. I managed a team of people straight away. <laughs> and then the company grew like weeds. We went from kind of 10, 20 people to 300 people in, a, wow. in, in the blink of an eye. And, and listed on the London Stock Exchange. And I'm sure we'll come in to that two later. Years, no? like it, it in, 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 years. In, less than, in less than two years. And it was wow. amazing. The culture was completely different to those sort of big tech companies. It was all about going down to the pub and working hard until the early hours of the morning and just getting things done. And, you know, I was in the boardroom talking to people from everybody from Cadbury's and Philip Morris where we were doing big implementations. So it was it was like doing a an MBA program, in you know in a, in a in a couple of months, and we and we we listed as I said, and um, I just assumed that that's how it worked. That you kind of went to a startup company, you were bound to be successful, and um, and that's just how the world worked. That you 
um, that, that you became a big company overnight. And that's really what tech enables you to do, of course. It removes all those traditional barriers, especially new tech, as we see today. And, you th and things work very quickly in dog years, as we like to say. And obviously, this gave you kind of like the, um, the entrepreneurial bug, no? So now this gives you like the full 30,000-foot view and... And perhaps it gave you that confidence and, and understanding on, on the dynamics and, and for you to understand that, that you could do it yourself too, no? Yeah, I mean, Alejandro, that's, I, think that's, I think that's a very fair point. But obviously, people that are entrepreneurs always have it in their blood somewhere. They always feel like they're always optimists. We always feel like we can achieve it no matter what the naysayers might say. But it becomes a lot easier if you actually see it happen with your own two eyes. So I saw a company, uh, I saw guys that were good guys grow, grow this business very quickly. And I knew therefore it was feasible. I knew the things that it took to create a successful company, hard work, togetherness, teamwork, skill, different people in the team with, with different skills. And, um, and I really, really enjoyed it. it, it as I said, it was, it was like doing an MBA program very, very quickly. <laughs> um, so it, it, it really lit the fuse for me into, into entrepreneurship. So then what happened next? Well, I kind of looked at it and said, um, this is great. And I remember the day I went down to, um, uh, this is the day, you know, some of your uh, listeners won't remember actually buying a newspaper, but um, back in the, uh, in the 80s, we used to have to buy newspapers and um, I was reading about these, this, 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 this movement in Silicon Valley. It was the number of companies that were listing and going through the roof. Uh, and the interest around tech was just, and e-commerce was just phenomenal. And I, I can still remember the day, and I remember what I was doing when I actually read it, these stories in this, in this newspaper. It was a feature article about, about Silicon Valley. And that moment, I just said, that's where we need to be. Um, and I just met my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And um, this is going back to sort of 97. And just figured out a way to move to Silicon Valley. So without understanding what the job was going to be, without understanding where I was going to live, two suitcases and a girlfriend, we got on a plane and, um, and came to the U.S. So that's um, unbelievable. So basically, you land in Silicon Valley, and and here you are, you know, like someone with UK accent, you know, without plans. I mean, what the hell do you do? <laughs> well, first of all, um, and you probably know this as well, Alejandro, is that having a UK accent, uh, people think you're a lot smarter than you actually are. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so you can, I, I mean, Brits are, are either are either the, the mad scientist or the or the or the bad guy. The, right. the the lunatic in movies that kill, goes around killing people. So I took advantage of obviously having a British accent and um, created a company over here called Incivo. Um, it was venture backed, um, and in you know this is the late '90s when you could raise capital. There was a there was such great demand for anything in tech, and uh, the Incivo was taking ERP systems and uh, basically web enabling them which is now taken for granted. But back then, you had these colossal um, uh, enterprise resource planning systems like SAP that couldn't find their way onto the web. So they were using traditional 
commerce, and we were building applications and systems to to uh, enable them to take part in e-commerce. Right. And it was the timing was good. Uh, we we raised funding, met some great people that are still involved with me today, and um, created a business and successfully exited it. I mean, you guys raised twenty five million bucks for that, so uh, so not bad at all. So so tell us then about the exit. Like, how was the exit like? Well, it was a tr it was a traditional venture exit. So the the venture capital companies um, really wanted to merge together two or three of their assets and create um, and create a business. Um, out of it, a handful of us, five of us left and started a business called Librados, which meant the freed men, as you well know. Um, so we created Librados and Librados was acquired in six months um, by a public company for um, for just over $10 million, which was a phenomenal. In six months? In, in six, six months. months. How we the hell do you get your company acquired in six months? Come on. You got, what's what? the secret sauce in there? You know, we sold too early. Um, we went from basically zero to 50 customers overnight. We changed the, we realized the problem that we had in licensing previously. And we changed the licensing and go-to-market strategy. Um, and it was a better, faster, cheaper uh, version. And the, the customer acceleration was just phenomenal. I mean, even today from Librados, the the ERP connectors that we built, I think we still have two and a half thousand customers in Japan, believe it or not, today, because we, we did a license agreement with a Japanese distributor. And um, I discovered only a few weeks ago, actually, that there are still two and a half thousand companies using that product today. So I think um, six months seems like it's, uh, like it's really short, but we just, we just got it right. We just, we just got product market fit sorted out and um, and the rest, as they say, was history. And then a public company, NetManage, came to knocking on the door. And, you know, six months in, you kind of have to look at, you've got to look at that deal. There was no venture capital in the industry, so it was 100% owned by basically three of us. And we, you know, you, you have to do that deal. That's amazing. So, uh, so then what did you learn from product market fit? Because it seems that obviously there you, you really hit it out of the park. So what, what did you get from product well, market fit? Well, very, very good question. You, when you're doing something in a company, we, we all, we're all stubborn. We all want to make our notion work, even if it's wrong sometimes. And when you can see it's wrong, it's like turning an oil tanker sometimes when you've got a, when you've got a bigger company. Even, even in startup stage, when you've, you know, you've, told, you've told your investors, you've told your board that we think this is the go-to-market strategy, you, it's very hard to make a change. So when we started Librados, we realized all the mistakes that we'd made. So we were able to correct them very quickly because we didn't have any of those, any of those problems. And it was per the product market fit was perfect. Now, what was interesting is we knew it all along. <laughs> we just couldn't do anything about it. So that gave us almost the, the license to make the necessary changes to fix it, and it was fixed in three months, literally. I mean, it was the licensing model, the product, the making it more embeddable, and all those things that companies were really asking for. You just have right. to, you've got to listen to that small inner voice that you have, and we've all got it, um, and I learned a lot from that. So we, we fixed it, the 
it, the rest the rest is history. The company was acquired very quickly and was very successful. So you're you're talking about like listening to that voice. How do you listen to that voice? It's it's hard, and we'll come to a story a little later. You need almost an out of body experience to really listen to it. You need to be you, you need to be faced with a with with something that forces you to do it. It's difficult to replicate. Sometimes you you need to just go and take some time off, and you need to look critically within yourself. And that's it. Sounds really easy to do. It's it's really hard when you're when you're basically doing. All entrepreneurs have to do this seven days a week, three hundred and sixty-five days a year. You know, the holidays really don't exist because we're always thinking about the same thing. How do I make this work? How do I make this work? Um, you have to sometimes just take some time off. Go to yeah. Antarctica. I did that recently. Go to the Antarctic and and switch off completely. Uh, try and do that because the benefit is is far far greater. I mean, not everybody has the the fortitude to actually have that. That that forcing function of being forced out of a company or um, having having failure, but at the end of the at the end of the ride, everybody will say, "You know what? I should have done this." And it's can can you bring that? I should have done this forward to the moment when you actually really need to do it. And that's the Absolutely. that's hard. It's hard. So, David, obviously, you know, like after you know, like this incredible uh, experience of um, getting the company acquired in six months, you know, now you know you're faced with, hey, what what I'm gonna do next? And I understand that that you were thinking about perhaps really going the more on the investor side rather than on the operator side. So, um, so I'm sure uh, there, you know, there was a big change, something that was unexpected. So, what was that? Yeah. So, um, I have a I have a big passion for. Um, for creating companies and you know some of the expertise that I've acquired over time in giving that expertise to other people and allowing them to create companies um, and, and providing equity and finance uh, for those companies. So, and I will do this eventually. So that's what we were going to do. So the people um, who started Librados, we all said, okay, we let's go and try and invest in the uninvestable. Technologists with really brilliant ideas that venture can't really touch because there's not a management team, there's not a go-to-market strategy, there's not any of the things that they're really, really looking for that makes it very, very hard to invest in. And, and we all know, you know, the, there are lots of examples and situations where, where that's taken place. So um, one of the first people I got introduced to was a distributed computing guru uh, called Dr. Tura Lad. So Dr. Lad had... Um, been working. He was the um, distributed systems architect at some microsystems and before that at IBM Labs. The guy's a total genius, right? I mean, think, think Einstein and in computer science, and he even looks like Einstein, right? So this, um, so this guy from the Indian subcontinent from Madras came to see me. He's, he was dressed in a, in a trade show t-shirt that was probably from 10 years prior, a pair of shorts and flip-flops, classic Silicon Valley. <laughs> And, um, uh, and, and he just talked me through what he'd done, which is he gave up his job in 2000, sat at home with a laptop, and figured out how you achieve something called active-active one-scope data replication, which traditional thinking says isn't possible for a variety of reasons. I won't go into them on this podcast. I won't bore everybody to death. But um, 
we couldn't believe uh, what we were listening to. And he'd been to Venture, and Venture had kind of said, mm, no, and uh, you know, four or five Venture funds had basically turned him down. So he really was desperate to start a company. And rather than initially we looked at it as, is, could this be a, like a core key investment? But this was actually creating a company. So it wasn't really feasible to look at this as, as, as just an investment because it would require a, a great deal of time from everybody. And, you know, we had to actually build a company. And that was the beginning of Wandisco. So Wandisco was, was his name. It stands for Wide Area Network Distributed Computing. Um, we, we couldn't believe the depth of intellectual property. It's highly unusual that you would get somebody take five years of their life to work on the, the mathematical problem and then build algorithms on the, on the back of it. So what's really interesting about the intellectual property at Wandisco, or the thing that I was really fascinated by, is that typically what you see in most startups is two guys in a coffee pot kind of hacking code, trying to figure out a problem and eventually come to a prototype and then iterate on the prototype and, until you get something that you can show to investors. This was three years of pure math and two years of building the algorithm that would achieve um, active, active data movement, which is absolutely fascinating. And it turns out it has huge use cases, particularly as it pertains to cloud computing and data movement to cloud. So that was the beginning of Wandisco. It was really a, uh, a meeting about, is, is this a potential investment to, no, this is, this is a company and we're going to get together and do something special and create a company. Wow. So then what happened? You know, after, you know, you're shocked to the core with this uh, in, initiative and you guys, you know, obviously decide to change, you know, course of action, you know, what, what happened there? Well, I still get goosebumps thinking about it now because I sat down with a lad and, and said, okay, the, the, the IP, the intellectual property here is so strong. Um, I, I can't think of a scenario, and, and we don't also know when it's going to be important. And that was really the key thing. But we all had an inkling it was very, very important and had huge use cases, but we don't know when, it's, when the inflection point is going to be when this becomes very important. Because really what he devised is an alternative. His, his start point was that the, the internet is very inefficient. It's still based on three-tier client server. And he basically had invented a, a better internet. So when you have something that's potentially that big, that important, and where the intellectual property is so strong, I'm not really concerned about, you know, anybody breaching our patents, anybody coming up with an alternative to this, because it's based on such deep, complex mathematics, the chances of it are highly, highly un unlikely. So it created a problem, <laughs> because I couldn't, I didn't want to sell any piece of the company to anybody. And I said to him, look, you're going to have the same equity stake, uh, which is still the case today, that I'm going to have, we're going to be equal partners. And we are going to, because it would be very easy, and, and this is, you know, the, this concept of enlightened self-interest is often lost with a lot of investors and a lot of business-focused entrepreneurs that, you know, if I benefit, he's going to benefit, but he's going to benefit in exactly the same way. So, you know, don't rip people off, you know, have enlightened self-interest, you know, have the same aligned goals. You know, just because I can talk business speak and talk to investors, it doesn't necessarily mean that I get more of the pie than he gets, the guy that actually invented the technology. So we became 
It was very, very important, I'd suggest. We became equal, equal partners and created the business together. Um, and um, we, we decided to go it alone, which was unusual, which meant that for the first sort of three, four years of the company, we artificially probably grew slower than we otherwise could have. Um, but I think in the long run, it was, it was a very very, good, very, very good choice. We built a really solid company. So the first products were actually in source code management. So we said, okay, centralized source code repositories like CVS at the time, God, you remember that, and Subversion um, probably don't match the way that companies really operate. So we have developers in, you know, everybody's got developers in India, China, United Kingdom, Europe, United States, Poland, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it's very inefficient for them to be sending source code back and forth to a central repository somewhere. So we built basically active, active distributed repositories. So somebody looking at source code in China is looking at exactly the same source code as somebody in the United States and so on. So um, that, was the, that was the original product set, um, which at the time, I mean, it's very different now. You know, Mark Andreessen, software's eating the world. Actually, it wasn't that cool. To, to be a, uh, a source code management company. Um, it's a lot cooler now with Atlassian and other companies in and around the space and Git, GitLab, GitLab, GitHub, sorry. Um, yeah. But back in those days, it, it, it actually wasn't that cool. But we always had assumed that the product logically, this is active, active data movement, had wider, much more important use cases in enterprise runtime and that means looking at data sources, storage systems, and so on. And we were really waiting for a change to happen because everybody said, why don't you just go and apply the Sonorital database? Well, when you're in the right path of data sources, then you, you're in the right path of data sources and you need cooperation from Oracle or Sybase or whoever. And they were never going to uh, help us to do this. So we were looking for something, a change to happen in the storage world, particularly around open source. And that happened. Very nice, very nice. And obviously, the way that that you guys uh, obviously now you got the the team, the um, the idea, the execution going. You know, you've been at it, you know, for some time. You're obviously not growing at the same pace as let's say the the venture back companies. Uh, but you know, at one moment, you decided to do something that is not very traditional, uh, and you decided to raise money in a way that the I think our listeners are going to hear it, you know, many of them for the very first time. So what was that? <clears throat> okay, so because of my experience earlier in my career uh, with, with Druid, where I saw a company list in the UK, I knew that the bar was lower than it is in, in, in a traditional US-based IPO, listing on NASDAQ where the banks won't look at you if you're less than kind of 50, 100 million um, of revenue. So we... As I said from the outset, we, we knew that the technology was important. We, we knew that applying this to um, runtime architecture, storage, databases, et cetera, was, was, was where the real money is um, for, for this company. So we, we looked at um, a variety of different options for the company next. So we went to talk to Venture. Venture, of course, was really interested, um, but we didn't know when that inflection point was going to be, it would be taking a gamble or taking a bet on what was going to happen next. And as it turns out, I think we actually went down the right path. Uh, in hindsight, we went down the right path, but that, that was our inkling anyway. So 2011, we could see a, a change happening in, um, in storage that uh, 
companies were now becoming data-driven companies. We all know the story, right? So you know, Amazon is a, is, a, is a data company with a, with a retail arm, essentially, um, as are a lot, a lot of companies, banks and so on uh, these days. So we could see this thing called Hadoop coming over the horizon. And uh, that, was, that was the trigger that we needed because we said, okay, if you're going to implement large-scale um, storage arrays, what used to be a small outage for disaster recovery, where I basically take a snapshot of data and move it from point A to point B, um, when I've got data sets that are a million times uh, bigger than that, then the outage to move data will be a million times bigger. So it requires something else, and the something else we said was us. So we looked at different funding options, and we actually settled on listing the company, becoming a public company, on the AIM market, the alternative investment market in the UK, which is kind of interesting because it's an alternative to venture. But the, the quality of investors is very, very high. So if you look at our cap table, you know, there's companies like uh, investment funds like Oppenheimer and Fidelity and a whole array, T. Rowe, and a whole array of funds that in some cases are 100 billion plus in, 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 uh, in assets under management. So you're dealing with very, very big long-term capital that is looking for returns over a longer period of time often than venture. So people often get confused that the venture has natural redemptions that happen from limited partners. As the fund runs to the end, they have to pay the money back to the investors. And sometimes that can be over relatively short periods of time. So when DiscoFight was founded in, in 15 years ago in 2005, one's never completely certain when the inflection point is going to be. So AIM provides you access to capital that is non-traditional. Yeah, I know. You know, a lot of companies are going to go to the Sequoias and the, and the, and the larger um, uh, venture firms, uh, the famous venture firms that make, make stuff happen. But it doesn't always work, it's, it, especially when you have a longer time horizon, when you've got deep intellectual property like we had without certainty of when that inflection point was going to come. And kind of it's a good job that we were listed over there because, of course, there were big changes in the marketplace caused by cloud computing. Right. So then what happened? So, like, how, how do you guys raise the money? Like, what was the, what was the process like? Yeah, so we, we, we took the company public um, in, uh, in 2012. Um, and that was, the, that was the thesis. The investment thesis was, hey, we've got a great business in source code management, but we think that this we're going to build technology in the big data space. So we, we, uh, we, ra we were oversubscribed by, I think, four times on the original IPO. We, we raised initially around $15 million dollars um, to really go to market and investigate this thesis. We grew, that enabled us to grow the company. We made, a, we made an acquisition of a company called Altostore that was two of the original creators of Hadoop back at Yahoo. So we instantaneously got the skills into the business that we needed. That was a very good acquisition. And those guys came, came on as part of the team. And, um, and we, began to, we began to build products and we were, kind of midway through the market, the, the source code management business was going well. Um, and then we saw in 2015, 2016, huge changes, huge cavernous changes happening in the market. And it was really being disrupted by cloud. So what we're now seeing today 
is um, uh, companies um, that need to do machine learning, what we call artificial intelligence, but when I went to university, artificial intelligence was, was what we now call general AI, and really what we're talking about is machine learning. But right. these huge storage arrays that require CPUs and 2,000, 3,000 CPUs that, are, that, are, that might be used for an hour a week, right? So they're not good use cases for on-premise anything. <laughs> you can't yeah. build an, an elastic infrastructure on-premise to cope with these type of ML um, algorithms that are, that are now running. So, and the light really turned on for me when one of the largest retailers in the world that can pretty much buy anything they want said that they couldn't do this, that they had to move to cloud. That was the, the writing then is on the wall. So for us, it was, oh shit, <laughs> um, yeah. it, this is not going to be on premise. This is going to be in the cloud. How do we play in the cloud? Because And this is, the, this is also at the same time, you're a publicly traded company. So as you're thinking and seeing this, you're like, we're probably going to have to explore doing a pivot and it's actually a pretty uh, a pretty publicly uh, type of event no oh my god so this is the yin and the yang so the the good the good thing about being um, a public company is that you have access to all kinds of um, long-term very large capital and, uh, and 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 that's great so the capital markets are great the bad the bad news is that as a private company, you can go and say, everything's fine, don't worry about it, come and see us in 12 months and we'll have a story for you. In the, in the public markets, you can't do that. So you are trying to pivot a business through massive disruption. So, so I, I mean, we, we luckily, not luckily, but we'd, we'd, we could see the writing firmly on the wall where companies just were not going to build out very large Hadoop clusters anymore and they were going to have to try and move those basically to the cloud and, it, wow. and it the good news was that we solve a huge problem <laughs> a, 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 actually a much much more important much more valuable much bigger problem in how you move on-premise data lakes and storage systems to the cloud which i'll maybe come to later but so that was that was good because we could see the we could see light at the end of the tunnel but we have a long tunnel and we have to pivot this business with revenue uh, requirements for the public markets, et cetera. Um, and dealing with that was, go was going to be very, very hard and not something that is a good idea to play out in the, um, in the public markets. For sure. And because how big was the business at that point? <clears throat> so we were uh, 150 people and uh, total employees. With, with revenues forecast that year for 30, 35 million. Um, and then um, while we were, as we executed the plan, um, a, complete, uh, <laughs> a complete disaster happened, uh, which played out um, in the press in the UK and um, was of, of great interest. And it was, I would say, more on the front page than on the business pages um, where I actually got fired. Um, and you talk about near-death experience. Well, this was this was actually death or Lazarus-like uh, death experience. Or, or so we were right in the middle of it. And then I was taking a flight to London. Um, just hired a new CFO, um, uh, Eric, who's still my CFO today. Great guy. And um, 
uh, woke up in the morning at the hotel and got a phone call. And it was the chairman, bearing in mind that I had actually hired the chairman, offered him the job myself. I was the chairman and CEO, <clears throat> as I am now. Um, but uh, I was the person that made him the chairman. And, an, and another non-exec who I also report, appointed um, basically took me into the took me into the back room, took me into the woodshed, if you will, and basically uh, said, uh, sign this or else. Basically, we want you to resign, um, and we're going to put an RNS out uh, in the next hour. <clears throat> so that was obviously a huge shock. Um, it's Did it's you never... Did that coming or, or, or not? Or it came not even out of the blue completely. Um, we had alignment. We had alignment with shareholders, um, who were investing in in this in this pivot that we were making? They understood completely um, how cloud was was far more important than on-premise Hadoop, and um, and we we uh, taken costs out of the business to enable us to get through this this chasm that was um, this revenue chasm that we were going to experience. Um, so we were well set, and then suddenly that happened, and. I would, I would say firing a founder, doesn't matter who it is, you need to be very, very careful. <laughs> you, you can't, you know, when you start the business, every single, you know, every single person in the business is looking up to that, to the founder. And founders know this, right? They interview everybody. They hire everybody. They are reassuring everybody, et cetera, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the business is had and out. I mean, the, the book, Good to Great, you know, from Jim Collins is a good one where they measure you know, performance. And, and obviously those companies where the founder is still involved, you know, leading the business, they tend to outperform those that end up firing, you know, the, the founder. Exactly. And <clears throat> oftentimes people from, um, you know, my chairman came from a uh, big, big tech company, um, that Sage, from, from, a, from a very traditional, uh, you know, monopolistic perspective where, um, I mean, somebody once said that cheese sandwiches can run those run, run those kind of company companies. I don't believe that, but there are completely it's a completely different skill set running a big company. Maybe at the end of the product adoption life cycle, which is cash cowing, where you need a completely different skill set. So, in the place that we're at, it requires very specialized, dedicated, twenty four by seven skills. Yeah. That um, so anyway, so 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 going back to the story, so so you're fired. So all of a sudden you receive this call and you're fired. So what the hell happened next? So I'm, I'm, it was a sunny day in London. I was walking down the street and my phone began to ring. And it was shareholders saying, what the bloody hell is going on, David? I mean, we invested in this because you're going to be around. Why have you resigned? It's like, I wasn't, I didn't resign. I was fired. Oh. <laughs> and it, that was on a Friday. Um, and the, it was very apparent that this was done unilaterally without shareholders. So bearing in mind that myself and my co-founder at the time were sort of 20, 25% of the company, I only needed another 25% of the voting shares to be reinstated. And I would say within, by Friday afternoon, it was very apparent to me that I had enough votes to be reinstated into the company. But I, it wasn't that simple because while all this was going on, 
I, I had, and we talked about it earlier in the podcast, um, I began to listen to the little voice, <laughs> which is, should I have really kept that guy in the company? Should, I have, should we have really persisted with that strategy? All of those questions um, was beginning to ask myself. So on Saturday, I went, to, uh, I, I went to see some of my oldest friends up in Sheffield, up in my hometown, and we went to a football match. And we, Alejandro, we call it football. They call it soccer over here in the US. <laughs> I know, I know. It's <laughs> And what was really funny is the chairman uh, at the time was a Sheffield United supporter, and I'm a Sheffield Wednesday supporter. So, and the rivalry, as you know, in European football is, yeah. is intense between them. So is, yeah. there was all this going on. So I, I sat at the football match, and I, didn't, I can't even remember anything about it. I just basically thought and then thought, yes, I want to go back. And then Monday afternoon, I uh, had a meeting with some of the shareholders, and Tuesday, we instigated the, the plan. And it, it was great interest because typically what happens in a situation like this is that it might be six to 12 months, maybe two years before the founders brought back, before they realize, oh, no, <laughs> as you just said, we're underperforming. We need to bring the guy back whose idea this was in the first place and, and have them run it. But... I decided to, that that is what I wanted. Um, the, I, I was very grateful for shareholders who I think were friends. They trusted me. I told them the truth, uh, regardless of, of whether the news was good, bad, or indifferent. And we went back. And um, when I went back, it was amazing. And I've done a TED talk about this where you, it's like looking, when I was out of the company, when you're out, when you're psychologically out of the company, it's kind of like looking through the window of a meeting room and you, your, your view of the company changes. And for me, it completely changed. And it, um, and I was able to, it gave me a license to, I mean, I probably changed about 20 people in the company in and out. And why do you think that happened? Because all of a sudden like the reflection kicked in and, and then you were like, to a certain degree, like detached to the business, and and that allowed you to to do that, or or what changed so quickly? It was it was the reflection, and I I I'd previously fought against why the hell do people need executive coaches? Why do they need this person to come in and tell them what to do? And that's precisely why you need it, because you can't reflect when you're so far in the weeds and so far in the middle of something doesn't matter who the hell you are, actually having those thoughts is very, very hard. It's, it's almost impossible, I think. It was for me anyway. I mean, other people may be superhuman and can, can do that. But for me, it really taught me something, which is that, as I said, the little voice, but it, 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 not listening to it. And it really gave me, it, it wasn't just the voice, it was the license then. Okay, this guy's back. I can do not what I want, but I, I'm going to make good decisions. You know, I've had this near-death experience. I am going to change things here. And I just got the whole company together and said, this is what we're going to do. And we're, not, we're not going to do this any longer. We're not going to do that any longer. This is how we're going to behave. Um, you know, changed engineering and sales and changed the whole raft of things in the company that maybe I would have found very, very hard to do previously. Well, you know, like whenever there is a breakdown, there's always a breakthrough. So 
So there you go. Very cool, David. So, so obviously now, you know, like you finally did the pivot uh, successfully. You got back to the business. And how, how big is the business today, David? <laughs> so we're um, 170 to 200 people, um, uh, officers in, um, in, in, in San Ramon, California, in the East Bay, uh, Sheffield, my hometown, and Belfast uh, in, in the UK, Chengdu in China. And St. Uh, big development center in St. Petersburg that's growing actually. In in Russia, um, we're targeting um, 35 to 40 million primarily of, of cloud revenue. Uh, this year, we have a, a tremendous deal that we announced um, a, a month or two ago that we've been working on for a long time, which is our technology has been um, embedded into the Microsoft Azure Cloud, um, which is fundamental to our go-to-market so it's fully integrated with the uh, as a as a first-party service with with the with the azure stack so every single azure customer of course has immediate access turnkey access to the technology so fundamental fundamentally different company to the one that i was um fired from um uh, in 2016 so a pretty big turnaround and fundamental change in Go to market stock has performed very well. Of course, since we made those announcements, and um, uh, the future looks very bright. That's amazing. So, one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is knowing what you know now. I mean, here you are, you've done multiple companies, you've been, you know, on the ups, you've been on the downs, you've been even fired from your own business and getting back uh, and making things happen. Uh, if you had that opportunity to go back in time, and have a chat with your younger self, David. Perhaps that David that that was about to make the switch. You know, maybe that David that was thinking about going to Silicon Valley to start a business. If you had the chance to have that conversation, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to that younger David before launching a business, and why? Knowing what you know now, take some time off. Take some time to um, relax your your brain and um, and 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 uh, do things with the family because you only get one opportunity to do that. Um, now they don't get multiple lives. So when the kids are young and they're growing up and, and you're shushing them because you're on a conference call with somebody, don't do that. You know, you, there's, there's, there's lots and lots of time. So just plan, just plan your life and your time much, much better and make sure that you take some time off because performance when you take time off and the brain relaxes and you're not just always on the on the in, in the cut and thrust of, of running the company that you'll my performance the performance of anybody is much 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 better and also get some independent advice you know don't try and do it all yourself bring somebody on as a as a, as a coach as an advisor somebody that you can talk to somebody that's going to ask you objective questions Make, bring out the little voice, if you will, uh, in you, as opposed to you trying to bring it out yourself because you can't do it. I love it. I love it. So, David, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, Twitter is uh, David Richards, and I do do DMs, um, et cetera. And LinkedIn is uh, just David Richards as well. Fantastic. Well, David, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Alejandro, brilliant. Really good questions. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value 
either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.